From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, welcome to another episode of The Close-Up. Each week, we present in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today, you'll hear from acclaimed indie director Sean Baker, whose new film Tangerine opens here this weekend. After that, we'll go to a discussion with the filmmakers behind the 1998 cult classic 54. The audio comes from a recent event at the Film Society where we screened the brand new director's cut, which includes 44 minutes of never-before-seen material. Hey, Alexandra, come here. Listen, have you seen Cindy? Cinderella. Looks like someone has a crush. Cindy's back on the block? Oh, yeah, she's back. She's back, and she's going hard. Merry Christmas, bitch. (laughs) Sean Baker's fifth feature, Tangerine, follows Cindy, a transgender sex worker back on the streets of L.A. after a stint in jail. The film was shot entirely on the iPhone 5S, and what Baker does with the format is nothing short of innovative. As critic David Ehrlich writes for Time Out, this movie is everything, an ingenious blast of fresh air so florid and electric that it feels like a Pedro Almodovar remake of Crank. A day ahead of the release of Tangerine, the Film Society will present Sean Baker Times Three, a marathon that includes Baker's 2008 film Prince of Broadway, about a Ghanaian immigrant who hawks knockoff merchandise on the streets of New York. His 2012 film Starlet, about an unlikely friendship between an older woman and a young adult film actress. And a sneak preview of Tangerine, with Baker and cast in person for a Q&A. Sean Baker sat with Violet Luca of Film Comment last week to discuss the new film, as well as his career in general. Their conversation ranged from working with a small budget, exploring the filmic possibilities of the iPhone, and working with the same actors across different projects. So let's listen in. So this is Violet Luca at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. I'm speaking with Sean Baker today. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. So um, your last four films have been collaborations with subjects who traditionally don't get much representation in mainstream media, or at least very rarely have a say in how they're represented. What attracts you to that approach? And out of any group, why did you choose to work with trans women for Tangerine? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, um, it really usually begins with the location. So, you know, um, I know eventually we get to a place where hopefully I've made a humanist film, but from the beginning, it's usually as a filmmaker, just finding a location that I'm attracted to that I, I, I haven't seen on film or television before. I would like to see a story take place there. So, um, you're, you've asked about the, pre, the, the, the newest film. Mm. Um, in this case, I live about a half a mile from the corner of Santa Monica and Highland, which um, is an infamous intersection. It's known for uh, actually decades of, of being sort of an unofficial red light district. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already, I was already sitting down the road of exploring sex work in my previous film, and I thought, you know, here's an, a completely different, this would be a completely different take on it, you know, a very different world, um, and very, very, uh, in, in almost the same way that I approached Prince of Broadway, I had to approach this one um, where, I, I knew it would take an extensive research period, um, and I, and I actually uh, turned to my my screen my co screenwriter Chris Briash, and I said, "Are you ready for this? Because it's going to take a few months, and more than a few months, because you know Prince of Broadway took an entire year before we even went into pre production." So, um, you know, my my attraction was to this location. My attraction was to 
exploring uh, the personal lives of, you know, the women who work that area, and which is, you know, primarily uh, transgender um, women of color who are the sex workers in that area. Yeah. Um, so uh, can we talk about that process of collaboration? Because it seems like there are sort of these multiple feedback loops going on at all levels or at all stages of production where, you know, you're interviewing Maya Taylor, you're going, you know, and then you're taking that material back to your co-writer. And then, you know, when you're on set, you know, there are certain things where they're like, well, I would never say this. Mm. So can you talk about that? Well, it's collaborative all the way through. And mm-hmm. to tell you the truth, uh, I don't take it back to Chris. Chris is there with me and he takes pages upon pages of notes as we're sitting there interviewing uh and it's not just maya um Mm -hmm. maya was actually a wonderful our passport sort Mm -hmm. of our our way into that world um very much can i talk about my previous films oh absolutely yeah yeah. um with prince of broadway uh it took about three months to find prince adu everybody was telling me fine prince fine (laughs) prince he's the guy he's he's your man um, because every up to that point, everybody had thought we were either um, student filmmakers, they didn't want to give us the time of day, or they thought we were police officers. So we had to eventually gain trust, but it was, but we still, these guys were working the area at the time and they didn't have time for us. They couldn't sit down and have more than 15 minutes at a time to, to give us some information. And it was when we found Prince, Prince opened that world because he, he showed such incredible enthusiasm and he was he's an aspiring actor now you know a real actor Mm -hmm. but um at the time he's like uh as soon as we met him within 30 seconds he said to me um he said to me uh you know i i want to make this film with about i want to make this film with you i've actually heard about you two walking around this neighborhood at the time it was victoria tate and i um who was part of prince of broadway and we and he goes uh, i knew you two were going to come around eventually and i'll uh, yeah, I'll help you with casting. I'll help you with locations, blah, blah. He just, it was like that moment where I realized we have somebody to work with and we're going to have a collaborative partner. And that's exactly what happened with Maya. As soon as I found Maya, Maya was that first person who showed us that enthusiasm, who wanted to work with us. We exchanged information. Next thing you know, we're hanging out at the local fast food joint and hearing stories and anecdotes and of the stuff that she had witnessed from the streets and also, you know, uh, uh, true stories of of friends of hers who have worked the the streets. And um, it was just that one day she brought Kiki to the table and Kiki sat down and that, and the two of them just became like our partners on this project, Mm -hmm. so. Did I answer your question? No, there? totally. No, okay. no, definitely. And I mean, I guess, has it? have you sort of refined that process since um, Prince of Broadway, or is it a little no, different every it's, time? It's a, it's of course, it's a little different every time. Uh, the very fact that that one was New York and this one is L.A., there's mm-hmm. traveling and all of that, just just the, the mechanics of, you know, just the logistics. Mm-hmm. But what was very interesting in this case is that I had two collaborators, and... While Maya was wonderful giving us all this, um, all these little anecdotes, it was actually Kiki who brought the A plot to the table, the, the plot of the woman scorned. It was, a, it was a story that actually almost played out to fruition in real life. One of, one of her friends actually was contemplating this mission. But when we heard it, we just thought, this is the way to go. And, but I, I said to them, I said, listen, I want you to approve every single step of this because it just being a cisgender, white, straight male from outside of that world, mm-hmm. the, we knew very, I mean, I've made other films like this. So Chris and I were 
already going in there uh, just knowing that that would be the most responsible and respectful way of doing this to, 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 to give them approval. So at first we walked away, took us about two weeks to write a treatment, gave them the treatment. They gave us the thumbs up. They actually really enjoyed it. They had a few notes here and there, um, and, uh, scratched a few areas. This would never happen. This would. And then we, through sort of, uh, I'm very influenced by Mike Lee. I think he's one of the most wonderful, you know, uh, today's one of the, he's still one of the most incredible working directors today. And, uh, his, his, I've read a lot about his, uh, his, the way of working, the workshopping sessions. So we had, we applied that we would write scenes, but then loosely loose scenes, some dialogue, but, a, you know, an A to B arc. And we would get in the room, we would actually, we rented out these really low rent uh, rehearsal spaces on, in, in Santa, on Santa Monica. And uh, we would get in a room and just be like, okay, imagine we're on a bus and it's just after Alexandra performed her song. Let's go for it. Here's some lines. And, 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 and I, re I realized during those workshop sessions that I was once again, once again, extremely lucky because I not only found these, these two women who have wonderful personas and, and, you know, this, the, their, the, um, and the, just the talent to act, but, but more importantly, they had that talent that I consider them the, something that is, you have to be born with. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, your, a knack at improvisational comedy. When I realized that they were like delivering me lines that I just maybe Chris and I, uh, you know, we, we, we hoped we can write that well, but you know, <laughs> Kiki and Meyer were just throwing these things out there. Um, we decided, you know, we we're going to use these workshop sessions to, to, to really fill in gaps here and there. Um, and then when we got to set, there was more of that. We would be on set saying with it's now after we shot the scene and I was happy with it, I would say now, is this real? Was that real? Was that as real as it could be? Or is that what we want? Is that how we want to represent that scene? And I would need to get approval from them. And then of course in post. Now the post thing became interesting because Maya walked away. Maya mm -hmm. said, I don't want to see anything until you have a cut and then I'll comment. Mm -hmm. uh, Kiki was there throughout the process. So I would edit for 10 minutes. I would call her. I would have her come in and review the 10 minutes, review the 10 minutes. And she would, she would help me. And you know, I have to say, she truly, um, she saved my butt a few times. <laughs> um, looking back at the process, like I, I music choices. Um, she actually told me, what are you doing scoring that music right there? Take that out, <laughs> you know? And she was, um, and it was really wonderful to work with her in that way. And then Maya was very happy with the final product. So that's that. Yeah, no. And I guess sort of touching on that, because they both actresses really had this amazing charisma that you don't see in, uh, let's say, in a lot of Hollywood actresses, mm, really, mm. you know, or independent actresses working today. Mm. Um, can you talk about how you could, because there are certain actors, professional actors that you return to yes. working with over and over. Can you talk about how you sort of imagine, you know, slotting them into something like Prince of Broadway versus Starlet versus Tangerine? Right. Uh, well, I... Um... First and foremost, you know, there's Karin Karagulian now. I've worked with five times. Mm -hmm. uh, he's incredible. And I always want to figure out how to work him in. I want to give him like a full out lead, which I basically did with this one and, and with Prince. But but uh, I I went into Tangerine saying, 
I called Karin, he's New York based. I said, look, I, I have this film. It, the, the two leads are, you know, trans will be transgender sex workers. Um, how am I going to work you into this? And he was like, well, it takes place in LA, right? And I said, yeah. And he's like, there's a huge Armenian population there, right? And I said, yep. And he goes, and every other cab driver is Armenian, right? And I'm like, yep. And he's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was really, that's where it went. Um, but with the with uh, like people like uh, James Ranson, who I really love working with now, Mickey O'Hagan, um, I basically, I wrote Chester for James. I wrote um, Dinah for Mickey. I'm really happy the way that that worked out. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, I really love this blending of first time actors and seasoned actors because it, 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 it actually results in a pretty interesting effect. I think they, uh, rub off on each other in, in nice ways. So I hope I answered that. Question. Yeah, no, you know, you're great. Yeah. Um, and I guess, so this, this film was shot on an iPhone, but with a very, very nice lens and you did certain things in mm. post-production mm. to sort of you know make it not just a video on an iphone mm. um can you talk can you talk about that process and also like what you actually mounted the phone on because there are sure. certain such where you can see that it's handheld but there are other sort of more sure um yeah I'll, I'll go into that but can i just jump back to the other thing really quick because sure. i realized that i didn't really mention this um a lot of my favorite filmmakers and the filmmakers who have had the greatest influence on me i look at them and they have they usually have teams of actors that they've worked with throughout their careers and and i just see and i see their work is so strong because you can tell there's this bond between filmmaker and actor and what they achieved you know and of course i'm talking about you know the biggies like cassavetes and and mike lee and and they 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 surround themselves with good people so once you have that team around you there's no reason to i mean you like to mix it up of course mm -hmm. but um but uh, once you have it there's no reason to 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 break what no to break what's not fit to fix what isn't broken yes. right right <laughs> or what is broken i'm so sorry i'm really okay. <laughs> anyway so but, but but let me talk about the iphone um so um yeah, it was it wasn't actually a different lens. We're using the iPhone lens. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um early on in the process when I first started exploring the option of it and it just truly came out of a budget budgetary constraint. Um we I was on Vimeo which has a channel dedicated to iPhone experiments. A lot mm -hmm. of short films are on there and I was very impressed, but I was really impressed when I came across this Kickstarter campaign for a company called Moondog Labs and they created a little anamorphic adapter that fits over the lens. Oh. So it's 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 you it's still using the iPhone lens, but um it's capturing your it's it's allowing you to shoot in true scope. Okay. True scope uh widescreen cinema. So um I thought, wow, that's amazing. I might we might not be the first film shot on the iPhone, but we definitely will be the first scope mm -hmm. iPhone movie. And um, it was that in conjunction with this other wonderful tool, an app actually called Filmic Pro, which um, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful filmmaker's tool because it, it, it locks it at 24 frames a second. It, uh, the, the actual um, compression rate, the quality of the compression rate of the video is actually higher quality than you normally would capture on your phone. Uh, all these other bells and whistles, locking aperture, focus, etc. And that, and then we had this little, um, a little grip, which is made by Steadicam. It's a little, it's called the Smoothie. And it basically just stabilizes the camera. And it's still, it's only eight inches. So it's, you wouldn't notice it from, you know, uh, from across the street. If you saw us shooting, you wouldn't know we're actually shooting a feature film. Our right. our only giveaway was our sound gear because mm. we actually did 
go all out and have professional sound gear. Um, Iron Strauss is our location sound recorder. He's wonderful. He worked on Starlet. I trust him all the way. He's a one man show. So of course, but he had the you know he had the huge sound card and the boom pole and everything. There was no way to get rid of that because sound is so important. Yeah. It's really what <laughs> separates the amateurs from the professionals. And we wanted. I, the whole time I was like, I have no idea what this will ultimately look like on the big screen. I mean, we had an idea because of tests and stuff, but I said, I'm not going to skimp on sound because if anything, I want the sound to be better than the, the look. So. Yeah. Um, and I guess speaking about shooting on an iPhone for financial reasons, right. um, can you talk a little bit about film financing and how it's changed since, you know, you began and sort of like, you know, it's we we live in a time where it's never been easier mm. to see, you know, small budget movies, but it's yeah. it's it's also harder to get people's attention. Perhaps uh, self-financing. Well, I haven't. Thank God I haven't had to finance one of my own films since Prince of Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, could have put a kid through college with thought. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, no. It's like we made the film for actually very little. It, yeah. We made the film for forty five thousand dollars, but that's still the, college. The, yeah, but the but the way that we had, I had to use all the money that we got. Thank God through mm -hmm. the award money from the film festival circuit to actually put it into finishing it, mastering it, and getting it out there. And so, so thank God I haven't had to do that since Prince of Broadway, Starlet. I had financiers, um, and of course, you know, Mark and Jay Duplass, um, executive produced, and uh, and they found and they they financed mm -hmm. along with through films they financed this film. So. Um, yeah, to answer your question, I guess it's never been that you you nailed it. I mean, it's never been easier, but it's never been harder. There's almost there's almost too. I hate to say this because you want to see every you want to see everybody working, and you want to, uh, and you you want as much inspiration and art out in the world. But guess what? I mean, there's almost too much content. Yeah, and it's like I. I feel almost given up as a cinephile. I try to watch one film a day, and I can't. Any, I mean, I can't, and that's not enough. Yeah. Like one film a day is insane almost to the, you know, to the average, you know, general population. But I'm I that's not enough. I have right. a queue that goes thousands of movies now and I'm not even seeing my my good friends films yet. I at Sundance, I was there for 12 days. I didn't able I wasn't able to see one film because we were busy trying to sell ours. So I kept on running into friends of mine saying, I, I know, I swear I'll see it. I want to see it. I want to see it. But uh, what am I going to do? I don't want to share links because I want to see your film on the big screen, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, what were did you experience any other challenges uh, shooting with an iPhone? You know, it just I just basically had to get over the fact that we were shooting with inferior lenses, you know. But once we were we, we, it was all about just making the most of what we had. Mm -hmm. And oh, I mean, there were minor things such as, you know, battery life. That right. was just something. But we had so many Mophies. We had so many external batteries. I think at Donut Time was the only time where we really pushed it to the point where all three cameras were dying and we had to have it plugged in as we were shooting. But um, for the most part, I was always thought I always thought it was going to be about space. Mm -hmm. But to tell you the truth, it's the compression rates are great. We're, I never filled up a phone. Wow. Every night I would have to go home. I was my own AE, mm -hmm. assistant editor. I had to go home and you know, uh, take the raw footage off of my phone, transcode it, get it into Final Cut Pro, all that stuff. And once it's there, it's like editing anything else. It's like any other piece of media. Um, so that was actually headacheless. Okay. I mean, we were, there was no, it, it, it wasn't, the workflow was very easy. Um, 
it was an ego thing, if anything. It was a blow to the ego. I mean, this is a this is my fifth film. I I love celluloid. I'm I'm mourning the death of celluloid. Mm -hmm. I if I had the chance, I hate and people hate to say this. I mean, people hate to hear this. But if I had the money, I would have shot this on 35 millimeter. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're like, but you were trying, try, you know, you're doing something new. I'm like, yeah, because I had to. Um, and But the, the thing is, is that like Takeout, I shot Takeout on the PD-150 with Xi Ching Zhou. You know, we co-directed that film. It was just the two of us working on standard definition. And the whole time that I was making that film, I was complaining. And then Xi Ching would just be, will you shut up? Lars von Trier's The Idiots is your favorite film that's shot on standard definition. It's about the content, not the camera. And like to this day, I mean, literally 15 years later or whatever, I'm still the one who's whining on set going, what are we doing? But no, but, but, but being the director though, I had to kind of hide that and I had to do the riot act to the entire crew. I said, look, we have to accept this. We have to look at it as a way of, this is our opportunity to sort of like, we we can kind of create a new aesthetic in our way, our own aesthetic, and we have to embrace it and we have to like see the benefits that can come from this and we we can just, you know, make the most of it. Because to tell you the truth, you know, filmmakers, you always try to up yourself every time. So you try to make a better film. So, you know, I, when I heard people saying, oh, we're gonna play around with the iPhone, I'm like, we're trying to make a better film than the last one, so we have to like put our heart and soul into this and see this device as just as, just as important as a 35 millimeter Panavision camera. So are you, are you thinking about another project right now, or are you just really focused on Oh, no, on no, we, we definitely, um, no, it's it, because it takes so long to get up and running, and so you always have to be thinking of the next one. To tell you the truth, I'm thinking more about the next one than this one right now, um, and because it takes time, you know, to find financing, and mm -hmm. it's extremely hard to find financing. Um, this film, even though I, you know, Mark and Jay were the only ones who came after Starlet, and I was, I thought that was going to be sort of my you know that, that the doors would be open that i would be able to work in with budgets of a few million dollars and do what i want but that didn't happen you know so after a year and a half of waiting i was trying to make a film about brighton beach and the russian community there mm -hmm. and we had the script we were all ready to go but we couldn't get like we couldn't get a-listers to read it because of the fact that we didn't have financing and we couldn't get financing because we didn't have A-listers. So it was this cycle and I knew it yeah. wasn't gonna end. So after a year and a half, I called up Mark and I said, hey Mark, remember when you said that uh, we, you know, you would, you, the door was open to make that micro budget at any time? Um, well, I guess I'm ready to make my fifth micro budget. <laughs> and he said, cool, what's the idea? And I said, Santa Monica and Highland? And he goes, all right, let me see a treatment. And that's when the whole research process began. But um, yeah, so. So um, I hope that answers that. So, um, but I mean, do you know? So you're going oh, to the, do the, the, the future? Yeah, I don't want to talk about the subject just because I, I do feel I can jinx myself. Oh, yeah, so, no, that's fine. But I, um, but I am already exploring. I've already started that research process with Chris again and my team, Darren Dean, Xi Ching Zhou, Kevin Shinoy, and we're already, and Radium Chung, of course, and we're headed down that road. Um, we're just hoping that, you know, we get, you know, financing. Yeah. Um, and I guess you have worked a lot in television or you have worked, yeah. you have a certain, so I guess when you approach, do you ever think of how people will be watching it? Will you, do you compose differently for a television mm. screen versus a feature film or are they basically identical to you? No, no. I definitely try to frame 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, there's this whole thing with, you know, the HD, mm-hmm. digital cinema. Um, it's come a far way, but a few years ago, you'd almost, you'd almost uh, intentionally grab a lot of close-ups because uh, the resolution, it retains, it looks better in close-ups. I mean, uh, just it's just that it, it, it holds the resolution better for close-ups. It's changed a lot in the last couple of years, and the advancements are so great. But um, no, to tell you the truth, um, we frame as if it's going to be seen at the Ziegfeld, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and especially with this one, because this one, when we were shooting anamorphically on this, on the, these little iPhone 5Ss, we didn't have external monitors. Those, the phones were our monitors right. and we were seeing everything squished because it wasn't stretched out yet to a two, three, five aspect ratio. So we had to frame it by eye and, and, and kind of radium and I would look and say, and try to imagine what it would look like once it's spread out and, and stretched, I mean, to mm-hmm. a two, three, five aspect ratio, which was really cool because to tell you the truth, that's probably how like Leone did it back in the day. You know, it's like they didn't have, they, they had to imagine what it would look like. And, and I think radium and I got so used to it and you know, we're also lovers of film and we understand that frame. So we were, constantly looking for how we could employ the two three five aspect ratio even though it was all in your head right excellent <laughs> all right well i think that wraps it up for me so oh, okay i just want to say i really love your podcast and i'm a subscriber excellent um, so <laughs> yes thanks yeah. for having me all right thank you our marathon sean baker times three takes place thursday july 9th with a sneak preview of tangerine and q a plus screenings of starlet and prince of broadway Tangerine opens at the Film Society of Lincoln Center on July 10th. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Want to experience the Film Society of Lincoln Center's rich slate of year-round programming in person? Then become a member today. Since the 1960s, the Film Society of Lincoln Center has introduced audiences to countless filmmakers from around the globe. Our extensive programming includes 5,000 screenings each year with new releases, retrospectives, special events, premieres, and annual celebrations like the prestigious New York Film Festival, New Directors New Films, Rendezvous with French Cinema, the New York Jewish Film Festival, and so much more. Supporters in their 20s and 30s can join New Wave, a membership program that provides year-round access to premieres, parties, and exclusive events. For more information about becoming a member of the Film Society, visit www.filmlink.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. Right over there. It didn't matter if you were a plumber or a supermodel. Hi, Andy. If you looked hot enough, you were in. In 1998, Mark Christopher's 54 was released to moderate box office and critical success. In the years since, however, the film has become a cult classic, largely because of its behind-the-scenes drama. After disappointing test screenings, 54 was taken away from Christopher by Miramax and completely recut. About 45 minutes were allegedly removed and replaced with 25 minutes of new material and voiceover. 
The resulting theatrical version, which completely changed the storyline and eliminated most of the film's queer content, was all but disowned by the filmmakers. Finally, 17 years later, the release of the official director's cut offers a redemptive conclusion to 54's troubled history. We welcomed writer-director Mark Christopher, producer Ira Deutschman, editor Lee Percy, and production designer Kevin Thompson to the Film Society to present their restored vision and discuss its significance. The evening was moderated by our deputy director, Eugene Hernandez. So let's go now to that conversation. And the place to get it all was definitely 54. Congratulations, guys. Thank you. Welcome back. This film has had quite a journey. We're going to talk in a little bit about what happened nearly 20 years ago, but, and then we're going to also talk about how you got the film. You touched on it at the beginning, the, how you got the film back to the point where we see it today. It looks great. It sounds great, this theater. Um, but I just want to start with one question, Mark, and, and then we can go down the row as well. Um, when you look at the film now, time has passed. You've had a chance to um, revisit it. How do you feel about the movie now? How do you feel? What's your relationship to the film like? And I'm sure for various reasons we're going to dig into, it's complicated, but, but as of this moment. Well, it, you know, when you make a movie um, and you are editing it, and in this case, fine cutting it, you're so sick of the movie, you can't watch it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm a little bit there, but I must say that um, I saw it at Outfest in 2008, and I was I, I, I looked at the movie and I thought, you know, this movie works. It was a movie that I really liked. And so um, uh, I had that sort of distance. Now I don't really have that distance. Uh -huh. um, now it looks like, you know, I see every cut, I see every, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of harsh cut that shouldn't be there that Lee would probably kill me for. Um, there are a lot of music edits. You'll, that you'll hear about be. those later. Yes. <laughs> He's going to beat me up later. Um, there are some music transitions that aren't the smoothest because, you know, you own a song for 19 seconds, not 20 seconds. <laughs> um, and that's all very important. Um, but I would say, you know, um, who is it who said you never finish a film, you just abandon it? So <laughs> after 17 years, it's time to abandon this film and let you all, you know, watch it and hope you like it. Well, let me ask the same question of Ira Deutschman, and then we'll go down the row. But uh, Ira, um, what's your relationship to the film today, and how do you process the experience with the benefit of time? I mean, one of the interesting things from my point of view is that this is the film that I always thought we were making. It was the film that was in the script. It was the film that was in all the rough cuts that I saw. So in a way, it doesn't look new or different to me. It looks like what I remember. And the at 55, um, I only saw that film once. And I actually kind of don't remember it very well. So That's more than me, Ira. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I saw 55 in the final sound mix at Skywalker and never looked at it again. Yeah, I mean, I saw it at the premiere. That was the only time I ever saw it. So I, I don't. So I, for this, this doesn't seem new to me. But the, one thing that is true, though, is that I felt like, and again, this is based on rough cuts and watching 55. Somehow, watching this now, it seems more authentic than it did then. And I think it's the passage of time. I think that. 
you know, like uh, I'm one of those people who actually did spend some time at Studio 54 in these days. And there were aspects of the film that always struck me as being not exactly the way I remembered it. And I think at this point, enough time has passed that I simply don't remember it. And as a result, it seems completely authentic now. <laughs> and since he doesn't remember it, it means he was really there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lee, uh, the same question, but I think that by asking you this question, it also allows us to start delving into the backstory. Um, Tell us about your relationship to this film now, and eventually we'll go back and talk about your relationship okay. to the film and, and editing it at the time, but I'd love to see how you process it and think about it now. Um, I'm not sure if I ever really saw 55 all the way through, uh, <laughs> but this is both very familiar and also a new experience for me because it has been 17 years. And uh, so a lot of it, and I haven't seen it in that time. Mark and Ira have been working with the film. They've been restoring it. They've been tracking pieces of it down. So for me, I was looking at it and saying, did we do that? You know, I was trying to, re I was remembering uh, all of the great stuff that we came up with. I know you guys have done some more inventing as, as time has gone on, but also it's been uh, kind of a rediscovery for me because a lot of it, it's been long enough that a lot of it seems very new. Kevin? I thought everybody looked really young. <laughs> but uh, uh, similar to Ira, I felt that it, it was the movie that I, that I remember making. You know, um, I don't remember the other one that much. <laughs> and I remember uh, many things about the process. I mean, for me, it's a nostalgic trip and um, really fun and, and really fantastic. So. Uh, I have been living, I have not been living it in the experience that you guys have. Um, I've been separated from it for 17 years and for me it's like going back and having all that fun again and remembering little things in Toronto that happened <laughs> that were really fun. <laughs> <laughs> So Toronto, where uh, you shot the yeah. film. I have to say that, that I, Kevin built a set that was yeah. the that was 54, and and we actually had the wrap party on the set. It was That's so right. it was a remarkable. Right. Uh, we could have sold tickets to that stage. That wrap party. We made a we lot. We got a lot for the money up there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, just just to be clear to everybody, he built the set of Studio 54 in Toronto. Yeah, so it was on. It was yeah. on. It, it was like at eighty-five percent. Um, everything except the balcony, right? Right. And we started by building a theater, and then built the club inside the theater so that it would feel sort of that layering of history. And uh, it was pretty authentic. Mm -hmm. Pretty authentic. Yeah, you had the whole. Uh, Kevin was an architect before he was a, a, a production designer. And in fact, if I can tell this story. Kevin and I were friends or acquaintances before we worked together, 10 years before. I moved here in 1984, and I, was, I had a friend who knew Kevin and said, the only way you get into a club is to push your way to the front and get inside. So it was the time of area in Danceteria, and you would shove me to the front of the club and we'd get inside, and ten, cut to 10 years later, he's no longer an architect, he's a production designer. I'm now a filmmaker and this happened. Do you remember this at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was somebody else. Um, no, but yeah. I remember being bartenders together. No, no. <laughs> Um. 
I was a busboy. So I think um, to talk about how the film got to this point, we have to also go backwards a little bit and talk about 55, if that's what you call it, for a moment, because, um, and you can tell me how much of this is legend and how much of this is factual, but my understanding is there was a screening of, a, of your cut of the film, two-hour rough cut of the film, for Miramax, for Harvey Weinstein. Um, and that didn't go very well. Uh, what do you remember about that experience of showing it for the first time outside of the group of filmmakers to the distributor? And then what happened? What were some of the discussions uh, that led to what happened next? This is, you know that, um, well, there's that cliche that we can't remember pain that well, otherwise, no woman would ever have a second child. Um, so, yeah, so I don't remember. <laughs> Put it this way, it was very painful, but I'm not the first director to have his film taken away and recut by the studio, and unfortunately, I will not be the last director to have his film taken away and recut by the studio. I'm just thrilled to have this crazy thing happen now. But it's very seldom that you get to do, that people get to do what you did. So that actually is, is quite lucky for all of us. Yes, exactly. And uh, it's called Tenacity and it's called Jonathan King also, who was right. an associate producer here, but was the producer of the director's cut and kept knocking at Miramax's door every year, right? So the fans, some of you are out here, would email me and say, what's up with that cut? What's going on? And then I would, you know, email John or talk to John, and then John would, you know, uh, talk to Miramax, and finally in June, I think it was June last year, they were like, all right, all right, yes, okay, go, yes, do it. So. <laughs> Ira, what kind of context can you add to this story? Well, I mean, you know, the, first of all, I, I just want to say that, that Mark is giving himself too little credit for tenacity. I mean, you know, like the, um, every time we got together over the 17 years, there was always this moment where, don't you think it would be really good if we went back and tried to make this, you know, put the movie back to the way it was and get it out there? And, you know, my sort of sensible head was saying, I don't know if anybody's going to ever let you do that. It doesn't, you know, but he, he made it happen. You know, he, he just didn't give up. And uh, that's the reason why we're able to see it the way it is. But I have to say, to go backwards, because Mark won't talk about this, um, because he's being really kind. Um, when, when I was brought on to this film, the minute that I got involved, I could see that there was definitely a disconnect between Mark's vision of the movie and the studio. And it was, it was clear to me that every, at every stage of the game, that they kept coming back with notes where he was trying to be a really good sport about it and doing the rewriting that they wanted him to do, but not going further than he was comfortable doing, and they kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And there was a moment in time where, we were talking about this last night, where you know Mark actually forgot about this, where we were hoping that the option on the screenplay would actually expire so that we could bring it somewhere else and get it made. And then at that point, we got word that they had actually bought out the rights, which meant that he was tied to it, you know, to, to them to make the movie. And um, 
I knew at that point that, you know, this is not looking real good. Why didn't you tell us that? <laughs> yeah, I tried. Yeah. Kidding. Yeah. And the, the restoration process uh, uh, is quite an undertaking, you know, and my, my, my hat's on, but my hat's off to you because uh, it's an enormous amount of work to research and find this material. Studios don't save movies. Uh, they don't archive things. Film preservation is a whole issue that people spend their lives involved with. So to find the music and the soundtrack and the dialogue tracks and to remake the mix and even the video that was transferred to... Uh, digital, whatever the final version of the film is, uh, was a yeoman's work. So uh, it's remarkable, uh, given everything else, it's remarkable that it even was technologically, technically possible to, to see what we saw tonight. Yeah, and Mark didn't mention this, but there's, there's actually VHS footage in here. You know, like some of that stuff that he was talking about being underground is literally off of a VHS cassette, which is remarkable that it's up on the big screen and it's actually viewable. And there were a few things that you couldn't you couldn't actually do, right? I mean, we're yeah. So yeah. in other words, we yeah. kind of had to select. So um, this negative, it's a 17-year-old movie, and everything that um, Lee is talking about, trying to find all that material is incredibly difficult. The sound is here, the dailies are there, the negative is here. It's kind of spread out literally all over the world. And no one bothers to keep track of where it's gone. Sometimes it's just in a box somewhere, and it's been left and forgotten. Well. It is literally in a box somewhere, <laughs> often forgotten. Sometimes on giant pallets and forgotten. So what happened is we didn't have a, an, uh, an EDL or an edit decision list, which would have been very easy. You just plug that into the Avid and there's your director's cut. We didn't have that. We had cobbled it together from VHS. And so we had to find the VHS dailies. Now, who on earth would keep their VHS dailies for 17 years? By some miracle, Miramax did. Um, but my um, uh, associate producer, Nancy Valley, found them by crawling around a 90-degree um, warehouse up in the grapevine in LA. And she found this big shrink-wrapped pilot with Mark to be destroyed on all sides of it. So she's like, looks interesting. So she pulled it back, and it was all our dailies. So had she not found it that day, there would be no uh, movie. Because then that, those dailies could be used to eye match the 44 minutes of missing stuff. And then there was a time code. And then the time code could then be used to go back and find the negative, And then some of the negative was missing. So there were certain scenes, uh, for instance, in Liz Van Gelder's fabulous Park Avenue house, they go into the bathroom afterwards and Shane finds out what a troglodyte means. Oh. And um, he, in that scene, the scene goes on a little bit, um, but it's such a beautifully lit and shot scene that if I up VHS uh, 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 video into this movie, it would just look bad and it would take you out of the movie. So we had to cut that piece and it seems to work fine but um, where Shane walks up to the balcony for the first time that negative was missing as well but the video looks great right it's like you know I, I feel like it not only feels very 70s but it's like yeah that's my battle scars from you know doing this restoration and that's in the knock on wood 
kind of section of the film? Maybe? Um, right? it's, is that what it, it's before Knock on Wood. Oh, it's right. where he first walks up and everyone is having sex up in the balcony and he touches the girl and all that stuff. So that whole first shot is VHS. And then some things literally like those opening shots, like we had a choice to do um, up-res video or negative. And I was like, let's set it off right. You know, let's make them all sort of up-res video and, and give you flashes of what that was like to give you the sense of the 70s. And then instead of pushing credits out at you, which a lot of movies do and which 55 does, we decided to suck the credits backwards as if we're sucking you back into the 70s. So that was a big part of it as well. And, and, and what was really important with um, you know, Kevin's work was that he worked very closely with our DP, Alexander Gruzinski, um, who, it's very hard to light a club in darkness. So we nicknamed him the second prince of darkness. <laughs> and he, you know, to shoot a film on negative in darkness and to have Kevin's work and Karen's work show through is really incredibly difficult. And they did an amazing job. Now, when 55 came out, they pushed all this light into it, and so suddenly it looked like your kitchen at noon. So all of that work that we had done to make it look like we experienced nightclubs, this dark place with flashes of lights and glitter and blah, 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 was gone. So you've got to see your work now the way that you had built it, you know, and Karen as well, right? Or Karen, you probably saw less, which means you saw more, right? <laughs> more what we intended. I have one more question for Ira before we go to the audience. So if you have a question, get ready. Um, Ira, in addition to being a producer and a distributor, you're um, an academic. Um, and I thought it would be interesting for you to contextualize this film for us from a social perspective. Uh, the film went from 54 to 55 in a moment that was very different from today's. Queer content was looked at um, differently, certainly from a mainstream perspective. So if one analysis of the reason for the film changing so much from 54 to 55 was the fact that queer content maybe couldn't be as mainstream as today, if that's a correct reading, um, I think it would be interesting to hear you, as someone who's produced other films with queer content, contextualize sort of not only what happened from 54 to 55, but how that relates to kind of the moment we're in now. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I hate to be the, the, the expert on this particular subject, but what I would say is, first of all, the, the context of your question is correct, which is that there definitely was a moment in time when this film was being developed where it was not considered to be a mainstream subject to have content that was quite so overtly gay. And yet, on the other hand, there's no doubt that at least you know, in all the drafts of the script that I read, um, that part of the intent was to point at Studio 54 as a moment when gay culture was actually coming out. Um, I mean, not coming out in quotes, but you know, being, you know, being more mainstream, being part of the conversation in a different kind of cultural way. So, um, so that debate was definitely going on without ever being discussed during the entire. Uh, development of the film and then eventually the creation of 55 was clearly 
um, you know, I don't, I don't want to go as far as saying scrubbing the movie, but definitely changing its emphasis to make it more palatable commercially. Um, so here we are 17 years later, and there's no doubt that there's nothing in this movie that would be a problem from a mainstream commercial point of view. And, you know, what, what has, you know, what's changed? I mean, the entire culture has changed. I mean, in all the ways that we all know about at this point, um, hopefully in the next, you know, two weeks we'll have a Supreme Court decision that's going to take it one step further. But, um, but you know, the reality is that um, the world, you know, even, even if you look at it from the cynical commercial perspective, there's no doubt that the environment today is much more accepting of something like this than would have been true, you know, 20 years ago. And I have to say, um, uh, in our early screening, sometimes, much to my surprise, audiences would object to the depiction of sex and violence in the film. And, and I was kind of blindsided a little bit by that. I was going along cutting the movie and thinking all the sex and violence was fine. Um, you know, it all seemed fine to me. And, and I was surprised to find that audiences um, in 1998 um, you know, objected to the idea of, of sex and, and um, sex and violence, am I saying? Sex and you drugs. You violence. I mean yeah, drugs. Like, where's sex the, and drugs is what? what I mean. And that's when I kept thinking, you know, it totally took me by surprise. Sex and drugs, what's the big deal? Right. It is a movie about Studio 54. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sex and drugs. Exactly, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mark, is, is the movie we saw tonight, um, is it the movie that you wrote and intended for us to see 17 years ago? Yeah. At its heart, it really is, I would say, yeah. Well, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you. And might I add, uh, the movie that we all signed up for, and I mean, I hope you guys agree. Yeah. Karen, do you agree? Does, uh, and certainly the actors agree, so um, that's been really thrilling as well for them to come out and support the film as well. Well, let's, let's see what the audience wants to ask. We'll take some questions before we head across and have some drinks and talk a bit. So we'll go here, and then we'll work our way over. Yes, right here. So uh, this is a question to maybe more explicitly explain what changed from 54 to 55, uh, for those who may not remember the original. Well, there, there are two different stories. I mean, one story is the... Um, 55 is a, is a different story. You know, it, that is a, a straight love story. Um, and that's with 30 minutes of reshoots. The um, original, 54, was always about a love triangle between these three people. I don't know if we've spoken about Cabaret at all, but Cabaret, being one of my favorite movies, was a real inspiration for me. It's this world on the edge of collapse, and in this case, in the Weimar Republic in Berlin. Uh, but, and at the center of it is a love triangle between two men and a woman. And that was a real inspiration for me in making this movie. This is this fabulous, exciting place, this unique, decadent world on the edge of collapse. And at the heart of it, you have this love triangle between two men and a woman. And um, it, uh, so, so this owes a lot to Cabaret. And in certain places, we actually knocked off scenes where we let the, the dinner table scene is sort of like the scene at the castle, 
of the Baron in Cabaret. And another scene we knocked off is where the three of them are dancing together on Christmas Eve. And uh, they're almost about to kiss. That's also from the Baron's Castle. Um, and, And the crazy, crazy irony and why I love New York City so much is that we rented that space, Kevin, right, when they were in trouble. The Studio 54 was in trouble. And so we rented it to do the ex- shoot the exterior of the club and to shoot the exterior of 53rd Street with the drug drugs and then to the, the walk down the lobby because the lobby was still in good shape. But the interior of the space was in disrepair. So we got a week to shoot those three uh, locations that I mentioned. and. Um, and I think helped them out a little bit. And then the movie came out, and then a year later, um, this um, theater company called The Roundabout moved into Studio 54 with a musical called Cabaret, <laughs> which is still there, right? So, Me love New York. <laughs> That's great. question is about marketing being... Um, uh, the analysis being that marketing was really the, the, the kind of key issue that that caused the film to, to be um, viewed differently or, or to ultimately not work, bad marketing? Well, so test screenings are this very blunt instrument, and um, some people take them more seriously than others. <laughs> right? Yes. So. Yes. Um. For those who, and without, you can speak more generally if you need to, Ira, but test screenings can, can, can really, uh, they can help you and they can do amazing things for a movie and, and a distributor's faith in a film, but they can also do the opposite. Okay, I'll, I'll talk very generally, which is that test screenings are designed to intimidate filmmakers into doing what they feel is necessary. I mean, they're, they're, and, and they're easily manipulable by doing exactly what you said, which is getting the wrong people in the room. Um, you know, who's the target audience? And, you know, like I had said earlier that, that I had the sense very early on that, that the folks at the studio and Mark specifically had very different ideas about what movie they were trying to make. And it seemed like the, the, the folks at Miramax believed that they were making Saturday Night Fever. And that Studio 54, and by the way, conceptually, the idea of doing a movie at Studio 54 that was Saturday Night Fever is not a terrible idea, but it just wasn't the movie he was making. Can I just say, though, has anyone seen Saturday Night Fever lately? It is dark and dirty and funky and funny and awesome. So I say, <laughs> I did. Well, yes. So, no, but the thank difference, you very much. Yes, right. But yeah, the difference is that it wasn't gay. Oh, that. Yes. <laughs> I got confused. And actually, this isn't gay. I mean, w- one thing that's super fun about taking this movie around to the LGBT f- film festivals is there are no bees. This is the only bee. He's a, you know, Shane is bisexual. He may be opportunistically bisexual, but his sexuality is super fluid, and I love that. And that seems to be very true to the era, true to people, and there's no judgment on it, and it's very exciting to be the only bee in the crowd. <laughs> okay, more questions. Yes, here. Yes. You speak about the casting process, uh, how, 
how the cast got involved, Mike Myers specifically? Did you have certain cast in mind when you were writing the movie? No, never. I never have anybody in mind when I'm writing. I did do a lot of research with the kids who worked there, though, so I met a lot of... Did anyone work there as a bartender, coach, a girl, or a busboy? Hands up. We have one. Yeah. We, who, where? There was one in the middle there. Is he still here? Yeah, yeah. Stand up. Yes? Bart bartender or busboy? Doorman. Doorman. Is Mark didn't come, though. Mark Benneke, no? He was there. I... Well, yeah, he, we put him back in the movie, and I just heard from him, so he might have come tonight, but I think it was a little last minute. So anyway, uh, yeah, so Mark Benneke was the original doorman, and we, we still give him uh, that name um, in the film. But, um... Question. <laughs> oh, cast, casting. Yeah. casting. Oh, so casting, casting, casting process. process. You don't have actors in mind when you're... Yeah, casting. no, never. Uh, really, from the research of the kids who worked there, and then um, fought really hard to get a Latina in the Latina role... You would be shocked in 1998 how hard that was. But the whole point about, about this movie is that it is the most and the least democratic of places. In other words, if you can get past the velvet, it's a little bit fascist outside on the street, but if you can get past the velvet rope, then it's the most democratic of places. So it doesn't matter what color, gender, size, what you are, it's a very democratic place. So it was very important to have a Latina in the role and make no big deal about it, right? Um, and um, so I was thrilled that Miramax actually helped me get uh, Salma. Um, uh, in terms of Mike, it was actually his reps who came to us because it was the last role to cast. We knew it was a very plum role in the script and um, we weren't agreeing on anything. And um, finally, Mike's reps came to us, and the second I heard his name, I thought, I think he can do it, because often comedians can play the tragedy, and the role has a lot of humor in it as well. And so I did my research, he and I met, we had a great lunch, and then we had three weeks of rehearsal. And, um, and where are my Cela Ward questions, by the way? <laughs> like, how great is she, right? Oh, there's a, is there a Cela Ward question? The film is less of a cautionary, cautionary tale, more of a party ride, is the comment. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, I, yeah, so um, I, the, the, what, what worked well with Ian is that he didn't particularly want to be in the movie, and that he was so behind the scenes that a lot of kids who worked there didn't even know that he was there because Steve was so the face of the club. So that was, you know, that worked out well for everyone. Um, and then in terms of a cautionary tale, that was not my cautionary tale. Um, for me, no judgments was really important. You know, I wanted to um, create a world that was true to that time, and we know that we know what's to come, right? So this thing that's hanging over it is your knowledge, and the one place I I sort of acknowledge it very quickly is where Ryan leaves the frame and we rack focus to the poster of uh, the village people ready for the 80s. And so there's your hint, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but yeah, so, and I, I just wanted to really give a shout out to everyone, to Kevin and Karen and uh, Lee and Ira and everyone who worked on the film is that I was so lucky with this movie as a first time filmmaker because I worked with all these filmmakers Kevin considers himself a filmmaker. Lee does. 
Ellen Lutter, who if anyone can find her, please send her my way. I could not find her anywhere, right? She considers herself a filmmaker. So when Shane walks into the um, into Steve's office and he's like literally sewn into his suede uh, outfit and Steve says that ought to be illegal, right? <laughs> so that costume that was, you know, that was Ellen. I had ideas for what, what I wanted him to wear, but she's, you know, she's a filmmaker, and so I got very lucky with working with all of these f upcoming filmmakers and young actors, and it was just, you know, uh, it was a thrill to work with everybody and, you know, to take that, uh, uh, to have that experience. And by the way, this is what I didn't know. Nev just told me in Mexico, she said, Ellen and I would look at certain gowns because Nev was the fashion plate. Like you see her just walking by sometimes. For her to walk by in a scene took about 12 hours for her. For me, it took, you know, a half an hour. But for her, it took 12 hours because she had to be um, sort of, the gown had to be built around her. So Ellen would find these, they, they were maps for these costumes. Do you know this? even. So there were maps for costumes, and sometimes they'd just give up. They'd say, we don't know how to put this onto a person, and then they'd go on to the next thing. But there's a certain costume that she's wearing where she's literally wearing um, facets of a disco ball. So it takes several hours to sew you into that, you know. Um, we're going to have to stop there, but we can continue to talk in the reception. Let's Congratulations. Hey there, this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Close-Up. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to get new episodes delivered to you every week. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help us reach more cinephiles like you all around the world and help us make this podcast even better. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.